A traveller passing through northern Italy's Lombardy in the 16th century would be struck by its beautiful plains, fertile meadows and abundance of grains and livestock. Large fields planted with wheat alternated with meadows crossed with an intelligent system of irrigation ditches and long rows of trees growing around the edges of the fields gave it that typical Po Valley plantation look. In the distance, on the northern bank of Italy's longest river, the Po, lay the bustling city of Cremona. East of Milan, on the flat Padana plains, it was described as being rich in men and traffic, an important commercial hub, and here you would find a strategic river crossing. In this city lived a handful of noble Cremonese families, owners of almost all the land in the surrounding countrysides cultivated by peasants still living under a feudal system. The crops they grew of flax, wheat, millet, rye and rice would be transported into the city to feed its citizens. After Milan, Cremona was the largest and most important city in the state, bursting with tradespeople and merchants. Almost 50% of its inhabitants are artisans, and the wealth of the city is substantial. In the Duchy of Milan, Cremona contributes as many taxes to the Duke's coffers as the rest of the provinces combined, making it a noteworthy place indeed. This was an era in which transport via water was 20 times cheaper than overland. Goods and people were frequently passing through the city on barges, often coming from Venice, then on to the markets of all of Europe with their wares. It was a transient place, an inland port even, where many people would pass through, stop and stay a while, then move on. But for those who stayed there, life was never dull. In the year 1505, a Cremonese artisan called Gottardo Amati and his wife welcomed a little baby boy into the world. They named him Andrea. As was often the custom, their son would one day learn a trade similar to that of his father. Of this his parents were fairly certain. What they couldn't have known was that this child would grow up to be the first in a great dynasty of violin makers, whose instruments would grace the salons of royalty and become proud acquisitions of noble families across Europe influencing every violin maker that would come after him, whether they realised it or not. Hello and welcome to The Violin Chronicles, a podcast in which I will attempt to bring to life the stories surrounding the famous, infamous, or just not very well known, but interesting violin makers of history. My name is Linda Lesby. I'm a violin maker and restorer. I graduated from the French Violin Making School some years ago now, and I currently live and work in Sydney with my husband, Antoine, who is also a violin maker and graduate of the French school, L'École Nationale de Lutry in Mircourt. As well as being a luthier, I've always been intrigued with the history of instruments I work with, and in particular, the lives of those who made them. So often when we look back at history, I know that I have a tendency to look at just one aspect of it, but here my aim is to join up the puzzle pieces and have a look at an altogether fascinating picture. So join me as I wade through tales not only of fame, famine and war, but also of love, artistic genius, revolutionary craftsmanship, determination, cunning and bravery that all have their part to play in the story of the violin. 
the Amatis. You may or may not have heard of this violin maker, but hopefully by the end of this series you will be like, Amati, yeah, sure. Which one? The father, the son, the brothers, the grandfather? Because yes, there were a bunch, five to be precise, spanning four generations, and they all lived in the northern Italian city of Cremona. Okay. In these episodes, I'll be looking at the Amati family, their extraordinary story that spans almost 200 years, and the world-changing events that moved their lives. I started by talking to someone who knows a whole lot about this family. Violin maker, expert, author, and researcher in Milan, Carlo Chiesa. I'm uh, Carlo Chiesa. I'm a violin maker and a restorer and a researcher on the history of violin making in Italy, based in Milano. And to find the Amati workshop, first we must go to the city of Cremona. The Amatis are all connected, and uh, if you look at the history of uh, the Amati family, that's the history of the Cremonese making for about two centuries, because the, the Amati workshop was the uh, only uh, serious workshop in Cremona for about 200 years. When you speak of Cremonese making, of course you must start with the, the Amati workshop. In the 1500s, Cremona was a city full of life, its streets filled with the sounds of clanging hammers and the buzz of conversation. It was home to a thriving community of artisans, each with their own unique skills and talents. Half the population found themselves in trade, but the other half worked and survived by supplying manual labour for the domestic market. There were servants, shopkeepers, coachmen, navigators, bankers, blacksmiths, carpenters, woodsellers, farriers, instrument makers, the list goes on. I spoke to Benjamin Hebert, Oxford-based expert, dealer, author, and international man of mystery. So Cremona is actually a very interesting city. It's if you if if you think of Italy, and you know, Italy's got the sort of long boot kind of going down into the Mediterranean, and then you've got the sort of the top of Italy is sort of kind of oval-shaped, sort of uh, like the socks sticking out of the top of the boot, and if you take that area, the great landmass of northern Italy, at the top and at the west, it, sorry, yes, the west, it's lined by mountains. And now you've got the Adriatic Ocean with Venice on the other side. And right going through the middle is the River Po. And that really connects everything. The Po becomes, by, by the time you get to the middle of Italy, it's a very wide river. So your last stone bridge is at Piacenza. Uh, it starts at Trieste, goes to Piacenza. And then when you get to around about Cremona, there's a number of islands, very swampy islands, and the the river kind of kinks a little bit, so it slows, and it becomes a little bit narrower because of the swamps. And that's not good enough to make a to put a bridge on it, but it's controllable that you can put a pontoon bridge over the river. So at certain times of the year, you've got a, a huge a huge bridge for trade, for taking armies over, and that's really the history of northern Italy, is armies going one way or another. Cremona is that point right in the middle of Italy where you can get huge amounts of trade, commerce, anything can travel through through and get over the pontoon bridge. And of course that pontoon bridge doesn't exist anymore, it's even difficult to see on maps, because in maps people, people draw land features and stone buildings, they don't do disposable bridges. 
so right the way from the Roman times, that's what Cremona stands for. If you go to Cremona, you will see that it's got, there's all sorts of arguments whether it's the highest tower in Italy, the highest tower in Europe, but the cathedral has this enormously high tower. And that's because actually from the top of the tower, people wanted to be able to see over the river uh, to whatever was coming from the other side. There was a massive fortress in Cremona uh, towards the western edge. And one thing that you'll miss when you go there is that because of the way that the river silted up, it's now about a mile, maybe two miles from the city walls. Carlo Chiesa talks about cultural life in Cremona and how it was placed in the Duchy of Milan. Cremona was a, was a large town in northern Italy, in the plain, so in a very quiet and rich environment. But uh, the problem was that uh, uh, Cremona was never uh, the main center of a state. It was a large city in a rich area without uh, a court and without a university. So it was a quiet place, so to say. The noble families from uh, Cremona uh, had a, usually a palace, a building in Milano. So Milano uh, was the important city and Cremona was just uh, an outskirt, so to say. Uh, there was no high cultural uh, life uh, in Cremona for many years. And at that time, that was uh, the situation. Uh, so it was, I would say, a quiet place to live. But for the fact that sometimes it happened that armies arrived from one place to go into another and there were wars and uh, uh, riots and things like that. So uh, I think life was, uh, was quite uh, easy in Cremona, but not, uh, we must not, must not consider that uh, as uh, we see it today. It was not safe. Uh, there was never uh, a safe idea of life. That is uh, the main difference in my opinion. It was uh, the seat of rich families, very rich families. It was a very rich environment, but since there was no court, uh, the cultural life was never as important as it was in uh, even smaller towns, which had uh, rulers and small courts. Let's say Parma or Mantua or Piacenza even. Uh, these are cities uh, smaller, much smaller than Cremona and less rich than Cremona, but uh, and situated just uh, 40, 60, 80 kilometers away of uh, Cremona. But they were they had um, a, culture, a richer uh, cultural life because there were kings or princes or uh, counts or some people who uh, took care of the court. Cremona was a booming city on the rise. Around 35,000 people lived there. The size of it meant that merchants would not accumulate fortunes like those in Florence or Venice. But what we do find is a healthy middle class earning a good living for themselves. To get an idea of the atmosphere, in the mid-1500s, 50% of people living in Cremona were artisans. 10% nobility, 20% were classed as just poor, and the rest worked for the others. Zooming into the artisan class of Cremona, we find that 60% of them worked in the thriving textile industry. Cremona was known for its fustian. That's a heavy cotton fabric often used for men's clothing and padding. The Cremonese fustian had dazzling colours and beautiful designs. 
Cremona was making 100,000 pieces of this fustian that was exported to Venice and beyond the Alps. This well-connected city thrived through its manufacturing industry. Their success was an availability of raw materials and their ability to be able to process them, as in the textile industry. There was a sort of funnel of goods arriving from Venice from the east and the rest of the known world. They would be shipped along the Po River in barges to Cremona, where they would either be processed or go on to be sold in the rest of Europe. There were products arriving from the north, Germany, and from the south, from Naples. Merchandise and materials coming from all directions, converging on this one town, which made it a fantastic place to be an artisan. All you desired was at your fingertips. The time we find ourselves in is the Renaissance. Cremona, as an intersection of trade, had not only physical goods but ideas, and it is into this world we find our first violin maker, Andrea Amati, a Renaissance man. Carlo Chiesa. When Andrea Amati was born and when he grew up, he was working and he was apprenticeship in a Renaissance workshop, meaning that his uh, training was an, as an artisan who was intended to be an artisan artist. So, the Renaissance, what was it exactly? I spoke to Dr. John Gagné to find out. I'm John Gagné. I'm a senior lecturer in history at the University of Sydney, and I work mostly on European history from the 13th to the 18th centuries. Uh, like, what is the Renaissance? Oh, right. Okay. Um, Just in a nutshell. Yeah. So the Renaissance, largely speaking, is a is an intellectual cultural movement based upon, well, you know, as you know, it's it's a French word meaning the rebirth, refers to any flourishing of some previously existing culture. I say this generally because, you know, there were Renaissances before the, the famous one, the, the Italian Renaissance, there was a, a Carolingian Renaissance, there was a 12th century Renaissance. But the one we're most familiar with is the let's say the 15th century Renaissance, which really got its start in the 13th century, grew in the 14th century, maybe made most famous by Petrarch, who was a scholar and poet, and then sort of exploded across Italy in the 15th century uh, when many culture makers and princes began to return to the inheritance of classical Roman antiquity to try to suck out of it the, you know, a, a platform for moving ahead in European history because they saw they thought that the past had been so rich and so much had been lost that only by going back could you find something to build the future with. And what's maybe most notable about the 15th century Renaissance is they really scraped all aspects of the, the barrel, let's say, of ancient culture. So it was, you know, uh, intellectual, moral, philosophical, uh, cartographic, scientific, uh, musical, arithmetic, it was kind of everything that the classical world had left, they really wanted to absorb and internalize. So in the 15th century in Lombardy, which is where Cremona is, there, there is a court in Milan, which also has a sort of satellite in the city of Pavia, the second city of the duchy. The duchy of Lombardy is you know, probably a few million people, one of the most industrious in northern Italy. Uh, the courts at Milan, the Ancestral Castle is at Pavia. That's also the university town. And then uh, and then the third city, let's say, although Pavia is very large, Cremona is often referred to as the second city of Lombardy because it's also a city of industry. And so the world in which Andrea Amati would have grown up 
Yes, there were. So there may be two aspects to that world. And one is the one I just described, which is a, a world of antique rebirth, which by the 16th century was in very full swing and had been internalized even at levels below elite levels, thanks to things like printing press, which had made access to knowledge more uh, accessible. And then there's the political environment, which was more tumultuous because uh, the Duchy of Milan the, or Lombardy was uh, a contested territory for the first half of the century. So it was a war-torn part of Italy. And so the world he would have grown up in would, would have been uh, extremely tumultuous because of shifting political regimes, uh, especially in Cremona. Uh, all the, the income tax, I think it's in income taxes, the Cremona was had, a, a, just as a city, had as much income tax as all the other um, towns in the, the duchy. Milanese duchy mm. combined. So economically, it was quite important. Yeah, and it sounds like one of their biggest industries was uh, textiles. It looks like uh, mostly fustian, which is a kind yeah. of like um, cotton velvet, let's say, and a few other sort of middle range textiles. So they're not, um, what Cremona produces is not fine textiles like silks and uh, silk velvets and that kind of thing. Those are still produced elsewhere. In fact, the Milan, the city, put up regulations that prevented other cities, even within its own duchy, from, let's say, getting into the silk trade uh, or silk production, which would have meant planting lots of mulberry trees that the silkworms could grow. That was not Cremona's specialty. They never really got into that. What they were surrounded by was flax and cotton. Mm -hmm. They had rich territory to grow that kind of crop. And so they produced a kind of like hard-wearing, sometimes called German-style cloth, which they exported uh, very successfully into northern parts of Europe. So, um, so yeah, basically it was a town that made a lot of its money through the textile trade. And they also talk a lot about the moleskin. And I thought they were like actual little moleskins. <laughs> and I was imagining all these like farms with tiny little moles. <laughs> and um, Emily, the uh, fashion historian, she said, no, it's a soft cotton. It's right. not actually a mole. <laughs> <laughs> So I was like, where are they getting all these moles from? Because <laughs> it was yeah, a lot. So, yeah, the, the Renaissance mole farming was an intense industry we won't get into right now. But no, I'm, I'm joking. Yeah, so I mean, it's, 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 um, it's a city that, and it sounds like, you know, Cremona's merchants were um, very active on the regional and international scale. So it seems like more even than the Germans, there were Cremonese merchants active in Venice. So if you're thinking about like the who would you, whose faces would you see most around Venice, which was of course like an international hub. The Cremonese community was extremely active in, in Venice, which gave them access to all kinds of uh, shipments coming from all over the world, really. Um, and then there was an access, because the city sits on a pilgrimage route known as the Via Francigena, which runs from England down to Rome, there would have been a kind of like cross-European access uh, route for traders, travelers, merchants to pass through the city as well. And uh, so there's a, there's a constant passage of merchants from Cremona up into you know, the, the Alps, then over into France and through diagonally through France towards England. Right, okay, yeah. In the center of the city of Cremona is the Piazza del Comune, or Town Square, a bustling hub of activity. This grand square was surrounded by some of the city's most impressive buildings, including the Palazzo Comunale, or Town Hall, with its tall arches and elegant columns. It was a symbol of the city's power and wealth, its political centre, its loggia de militi, 
its military headquarters and the cathedral, the religious heart of Cremona, with its impressive Terrazzo bell tower standing proudly next to it. Our violin maker Andrea was born in 1505, and as a boy the cathedral was already almost 400 years old. Rising up from the stone-paved square, it is one of the most beautiful Romanesque cathedrals in Lombardy. On its white marble facade is a magnificent central rose window with a two-storey loggia adorned with stately statues. The sound of bells echoing through the city was a constant reminder of its importance, and at the moment it was undergoing a transformation. If the young Andrea had wandered into the cathedral, he would have seen walls rising up held by giant stone pillars capped with gilded gold and intricate carvings. Weaving its way around all this was scaffolding, lots of scaffolding. The painter Boccaccio Boccaccino is painting colourful frescoes of the Epiphany and a cycle of the life of Mary and Christ. These paintings in the cathedral would continue throughout Andrea Amati's lifetime by a variety of artisans and as the years passed he would see the church filled with vivid artworks bursting with life, colour and action, sometimes even seemingly to spill out of the paintings themselves and into the church thanks to the artist's use of trompe l'oeil and life-size paintings depicting biblical scenes. It is a truly impressive structure. Coming out of the cathedral and walking along a decorative portico, you cannot miss the terrazzo, the highest tower in Italy, made of brick and rising well above the city. Its size and beauty were a source of pride for the people of Cremona. From this tower, which is in fact the bell tower of the cathedral, a lookout could spot approaching armed forces and the people of the city were not being overcautious. Cremona had an unfortunate habit of being trampled by invading armies on a regular basis. And yet it was an exciting time to be alive. The world was changing in unstoppable ways. This was the modern era. John Gagné. Okay, so, you know, the, obviously the modern era is contested and many people, uh, you know, accept that it's a fiction of history, you know, when we become modern. But there are some compelling things that we recognize in terms of the transition from what we call the medieval to the modern. And one of the, say, most uh, enjoyable ones is a print made in the 16th century by the Dutch Flemish artist Jan Straat, who went by Jan Stradanus, Johannes Stradanus in Latin, who worked for the Medici court. And he produces a print called Nova Reperta, which means new discoveries. And it's nine items that he thought represented the, the modern world. And they were the Americas, the magnetic compass, gunpowder, the printing press, clockwork, guayac wood, which was wood from Brazil that uh, was used against syphilis, distillation technology, silk cultivation, and the stirrup and saddle. And those were some of these, of course, are not new to the 16th century. Some of the like stirrups have been around since the deep Middle Ages, and some of these, of course, were Asian technologies that were brought to Europe you know, like printing or, or silk making and that kind of thing. Uh, actually, printing didn't come from, they were, it was individually uh, established in Europe. But all the rest of it gives you a sense of what people in the 16th century thought made their age a new age. And so syphilis was a big thing. Yeah, well, syphilis, yes, syphilis was completely contemporaneous with the Italian wars that we discussed earlier in terms of the breaking apart of local rule in Cremona. Syphilis, it's still di disputed about whether syphilis was an ancient disease that had recurred or whether it was a completely new disease that 
Europeans pinned on the Americans. But one of the first successful cures after mercury, which is of course a terrible cure because it also kills you, even though it may feel like it's complete, you know, fixing the syphilis, was the guayac wood from Brazil, which had curative properties. But the, maybe the overarching story is one about, you know, an opening up of Europe to things that, you know, these are all things that suggest going places or opening up to ideas, whether it's about the magnetic compass and the discovery of the Americas or travel, learning new things through the printing press. So it's, a, let's say, broadening of, of the mind of Americans, uh, of Europeans, I'm sorry. And that, I think, is a, is a nice distillation, let's say, of the idea of modernity in the 16th century is that these things are new discoveries that set Europe on a new path. And this modern era, with all its new or revised discoveries and ideas, would have influenced or been a part of Andrea Amati's life in northern Italy. Stories of strange and distant lands, cures of diseases, printing and the spread of learning, and music, incredible clockwork mechanics and more, give us a taste of the world he came from. Looking onto the Piazza del Comune, the centre square of Cremona, on a busy market day, you could run into locals and foreigners alike. Farmers, clergy, member of the civic community, artisans, nobility, peasants and soldiers. There were always soldiers from somewhere, on campaign, passing through the city. And of course, merchants. Merchants of anything and everything, selling all sorts of goods imported into the city from one of the many trading routes leading there. There were spices, herring, honey, oysters, fine wines, pepper, clothes, dyes, cloth, fake gold, iron, leather, paper, soap, hats, sugar, just to name a few of their wares. Although the city was under the control of the Venetian state, life was precarious, safety was never assured, and wars between the French, the Spanish, the Austrians, and even neighbouring states was a constant danger. The people of Cremona lived in an ever-present shadow of war. John Gagné. Uh, Venice also had a claim on Cremona. So part of it was that it was Cremona was being tugged in three directions. Uh, the French claimed it. Cremona actually broke away from the Duchy of Lombardy in 1499 when the French took over, and it gave itself to Venice for nine years or something. And then the French captured it back. There was a lot of back and forth. For strategic reasons, obviously, it was a, for all the reasons we've described, it was a desirable city in terms of its productivity, its revenue, and that kind of thing. Thousands of moles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, moles everywhere. And so, uh, but there was also, uh, interestingly, uh, and maybe this is characteristic of, of Cremona, there was also a large sort of community of resistors to a lot of the foreign occupation. There's one great story about in the 1520s, as the Cremonese were trying to escape from French oversight, that 500 rebels against the French entered the city disguised as peasant grocers to lead a revolt from within. So that's the kind of thing that's going on all the time, is, is um, an attempt to pull the city in one direction or another, often by the residents themselves that are trying to fight against whoever is in control. Yeah, it's, it's tremendously um, tumultuous until basically the, the French totally withdraw. And it's, as I said, Cremona's the last city other than Milan that the French withdraw from. All right, yeah, they're holding like that. Holding the on castle, to it. yeah. Wow, and then oh uh, yeah, and so it was really kind of like a, a war zone, like for the, until the fifteen thirties, yeah. Oh wow, yeah, fifteen thirties, yeah. So that's just that's his whole like up until from he's born until he's twenty five. Yes, 
I mean, then what's interesting, it seems in the, the story of the 16th century, though, uh, if I can tell big stories for a second, is one of recovery. So through the, through, let's say up to 1600, uh, there's a lot of recovery going on, economic recovery, you know, post, a post-war boom of some sorts where the city is reestablishing its earlier successes. And then after 1600, there's a slide downwards that comes as a result of a number of things, including the 1630 plague and the Thirty Years' War, which runs from 1618 to 1648. And that really... Um, sets most of Italy on an economic decline that's, that it never really recovers from, you know, until the 19th century. One day when Andrea was seven years old, news came of the brutal sacking of the city of Brescia by the French. I speak about this in the very first episode of The Violin Chronicles. <coughs> okay. Brescia was only 60 kilometers away and also part of the Venetian state. Would Cremona be next? Word came that Bergamo had paid the French 60,000 ducats to avoid a similar fate. Cremona was not in danger just now, but after some complicated manoeuvring, the city was now being ruled by the Dukes of Milan, the Tsvodzas. Battles were being fought and armies were passing through the city again, but life went on and Andrea would grow up in this time of uncertainty with continual war looming on the horizon. A horizon that could be seen from the top of that really tall bell tower we were just talking about, the terrazzo. At around the age of 14, Andrea would have started learning his trade. He was most likely apprenticed to an instrument maker or learnt from his father, perfecting his skills and honing his craftsmanship. In the Amati household, after several years, Andrea would have finished his apprenticeship, become a craftsman and continued to work under a master for many years. He would live through the turbulent years in his town until he reached the age of 30, when the city changed hands once again and was now controlled by the Spanish. The irony of this war was that the Spanish created relative peace and stability by investing in local infrastructure and injecting money into the region. They absolutely wanted to keep other powers out and ended up creating a bubble of stability for the area. John Gagne explains how the Spanish came to rule Lombardy and Cremona. Yeah, I should say that it was, the whole century was a bit messy, or the first half of the century was very messy. Uh, the first thing to say is that the Spanish and the French had been uh, in Italy for centuries. so. The Spanish had ruled, or the House of Aragon had ruled the Kingdom of Naples on and off with um, the Angevins of France since the 13th century. So in the south of Italy, there had been a kind of give and take between France and Spain over the rulership of uh, Italy's largest kingdom since the Middle Ages. And this had been going on even earlier in Sicily. So there's kind of a, a upward movement of this contest between the crown of France and the, the crowns of Spain that then breaks out at the end of the 15th century when both the Spanish and the French try to gain more territory in Italy. Uh, the fulcrum for their dispute, well, it starts actually in, in, not surprisingly, in Naples, but the Spanish managed to keep Naples after some tumults between the 1490s and the 1510s. But in the north, the French succeed for the first 30 years of the century. So the French establish, they take over the entire duchy of Lombardy, they kick out the Milanese dukes, more or less. I mean, there's a lot of fighting. They come back three times. 
Um, so there's a lot of in and out of regimes. Uh, but all, so the French succeed, and in fact, um, Cremona is in French hands for the longest of any uh, city in the duchy, and is one of the most fought over. So there's a lot of violence in Cremona through the 1530s, uh, and there's a lot of tension with the French uh, occupiers through that period as well. In fact, there's a great chronicle in the Civic Library of Cremona that I've looked at, which is vivid that just in describing the suffering of the people of Cremona in the first 30 years of the 16th century. Then the Spanish crown manages to kick the French out, and they say they claim the Duchy of Lombardy for themselves, which in truth they did have some claim to because the Spanish crown became soldered to the Holy Roman Empire in 1500 when the little prince Charles V inherited both the Spanish crown and the Holy Roman Empire. So in one person, you had that trans-European claim on a lot of territories. So it was largely thanks to the inheritance of Charles V that he could lay claim to the Duchy of Milan, which finally came into his hands in 1535 when the last of the native dukes died. And then um, it basically remained in Spanish hands until the 18th century. So uh, much of Italy was under Spanish rule of some kind uh, until the 18th century. And maybe the key, the last thing to say here about how Cremona became Spanish was that um, when Emperor Charles V retired, he handed, he broke up this unified dominion over much of Europe and handed off different parts to different people. His son became uh, King Philip II of Spain. And in the 1540s, the late 1540s, King Philip established personal rule over the Duchy of Milan. And in that case, you know, he sent a lot more uh, governors to Italy to take over and make sure that his own orders were being enforced. So by the 15, by 1550, let's say by the time Andrea Amati is like a, an adult man, the government he's working under is run by a Spaniard. Although the, let's say the city of Cremona is still being overseen by a largely uh, Italian group of magistrates under the rulership of, you know, these uh, Spanish representatives. The Spanish monarchy took over from the Sforza Lodge in 1535 and would retain power that would last for the next 200 years or thereabouts. This same period of Spanish occupation would coincide with a golden period of violin making in Cremona and would include the lives of the four next generations of our Amati family. This brings us to the end of the first episode in this series on Andrea Amati. The picture we have of Cremona in the early 16th century is of a busy commercial hub full of artisans, not particularly many instrument makers, yet things are about to change on that front. Despite the city being battered by wars, the people are particularly resilient, if somewhat warlike, and as you will see in the upcoming episodes, they will have to face even greater odds to survive and thrive, all the while creating some of the most beautiful instruments we have surviving today. I'd like to thank my guests, Carlo Chiesa, Benjamin Hebert, and Dr. John Genyi for sharing their knowledge with us today. If you'd like to contact me, I'd love to hear from you. And you can do that via email at theviolinchronicles at gmail.com. You can subscribe and leave a comment on theviolinchronicles.podbean.com. And I also have an Instagram with the handle theviolinchronicles.com. 
This is where I post photos relating to what we speak about in the podcast. This piece of music you're listening to right now is the Australian Chamber Orchestra playing Boccherini. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast, and I'll catch you next time on The Violin Chronicles.